Are you wandering in the wilderness? Or are you a voice in the wilderness? Welcome to the Revival Cry podcast. This is your host, Eric Miller. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The goal of this podcast is to encourage you to use the voice God has given you to make Jesus famous. Every week, we will share principles from the Word of God, interviews, and encouragement in order to strengthen your voice. Thank you for joining me today. And now here is today's podcast. Does anybody have any questions before I continue? I mean, feel, listen, I really want to encourage you to ask questions. It's a great way of really learning and understanding what it is you're hearing. Because here, this is what Jesus said. He who has ears, let him hear. So you could be here and not hearing. And I want to encourage you. It is a discipline to learn how to train your ears to listen. Because if you don't learn how to listen to God's word, and you think, oh, I know it, or it's going over your head, then you need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, help me to listen. Help me to hear. Because you have something for me. And I promise you, a listening ear is a trained ear. It's not something that just happens as you get older. But Because you can get older and still not hear. Right? In fact, when you get older, you lose your hearing. <laughs> not all the time. Okay. So we just talked about these 10... Uh, understandings of why God hates sin. And so I want to get into this. How many of you have heard that God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Okay? Very popular thing to say. We're going to explain about this. According to Father Vincent Serpa, OP at Catholic Answers, he said this, The statement, love the sinner but hate the sin comes from a letter written by St. Augustine, who is one of the early church fathers. I think it was 354. He lived until 430. However, more than likely, Augustine understood that the principle was a biblical since it exists in the Bible. That's what he said. But the statement, love the sinner and hate the sin, cannot be found in the Bible. The statement. Okay, so we're going to explain this. So are we to hate the sin? It is clear from Scripture that God hates sin. And He wants us to also hate sin. In Romans 7, 21-25, which we just went through, it is clear that the Apostle Paul struggled with sin and wanted to be free from it in his flesh, right? We just read that. Therefore, it is true that we are to hate sin. Jesus became a man so that he could die in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. God hates sin and we should also hate sin. So are we to love those who sin? The Bible also teaches us to love others, even our enemies, right? If someone is an enemy, 
they are sinning or acting wickedly. Luke 6, 27 to 28, and this is uh, the NASB version, says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. He's talking about people who are sinning against you. Notice that we are to bless those who wish evil and pray for them. That is a wonderful example of loving those who do evil. Yet we are to hate the evil they commit. Okay? We're talking about a principle in the word. Or which may commit or have committed or we have committed to. Some might think that Psalm 5 Verses 4 through 5 reveals that God hates sinners. Let's read that verse. Verses. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor evil dwells within you. The boastful or the prideful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity or sin. That is extremely strong language. God hates sin. But other verses teach that God loves us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Therefore, we must conclude that Psalm 5, 4 through 5 and other passages teach that in comparison to God's love for his godly ones, he hates the wicked or sinners because of their sin. For example, God still loves them. Right? Do you believe that God loves people? All people, even those who are living in sin? The closest verse in the Bible to the statement, love the sinner but hate the sin, occurs in Ezekiel 33.11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. What does it mean to turn away? Repent. What's the difference between repentance and confession? Confession is what? Admitting something that you did, but repenting is what? admitting what you did wrong and turning away to not do it again. So I can confess to you that I killed somebody, but if I don't repent from it, all I did was confess my sin. There's a lot of people in the Philippines who confess their sin but don't repent. I would rather they turn away from sin and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? I don't want you to die. I don't want sin to destroy you. But I have no choice to judge you if you do not put your faith in me to forgive you. Conclusion. Does God hate the sin and love the sinner? In Ezekiel 33.11, God clearly states that he's not glad when the wicked die. 
that reveals his love, that he loves the wicked. But he also hates their sin. He wants the wicked to turn away from their sin. This is a great lesson for everyone, that we are to hate sin, including the sin in our own lives, and love everyone. We can take great comfort and joy that God loves us and the wicked too. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If Jesus did not love us when he died for us, then what was the motivation for him dying for us? If God is angry at the wicked every day, and Jesus is God, and for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, we have to understand that God is both a God of love and a God of justice. The statement may not exist in the Bible, but the principle exists in the Bible. Steve Hill, the evangelist during the Brownsville revival, would always say this, a loving savior will one day be a severe judge. Think about this. Does God want to judge the wicked? Not if he doesn't have to. But he will. And when he judges anybody or anything, he is absolutely righteous in doing it. People think, well, Hitler should be judged. Well, why do you say that? Because you compare yourself to Hitler and you think that he's worse than you? The problem is Paul the Apostle said, I am the chief of all sinners. Why did he say that? Because he understood that he broke God's law. And his sin was against God. And because of that, he was just as guilty as Hitler. Or the worst person you could ever think that ever lived in history. And there were a lot of people that were probably worse than Hitler in history. But the point is this, if I know, if somebody tells me as a sinner that God loves me and that if I repent, I will not have to face his judgment one day, then the fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have those who do his covenant, Psalm 110. We can obey God by fearing God. And the purpose of the fear of the Lord is what? To help make us be amazed by the grace of God, by the love of God. You and I can serve Jesus not out of fear, but because of love. Why would anybody give their life for somebody else? God said there's no greater love than a man or a woman who lays their life down for someone else. That means he was talking about Jesus' example, not just somebody who dies for somebody else. Because a person who may have died for somebody else may have done horrible things living in their life and still be judged for their life, not for just one action of doing something right. Our good works will not 
out, make a, a, a greater out of balance for the things that we did bad, right? We think that if I did a lot of bad things, I do a lot of good things, that God will forgive me. That's not how it works. We have to be forgiven of our sin so that we can obey God in righteousness. Because he says, your good deeds are like filthy rags before me. That filthy rags is explaining what a woman goes through once a month. That's, that's the connotation of what he's talking about. The point is this. Although you have a good desire to do something right, if you don't repent and trust in my ability to save you, or you try to please me with your good works, you can never erase what you've done. Only I can do that. Only Jesus can do that. So we have to humbly see him as Savior and Lord. And when he is our Savior and Lord, then we can find mercy and grace, help and power and support whenever we need it. Sin is missing the mark. You see the illustration behind me of somebody shooting arrows at a bullseye, right? But they're not hitting the yellow centerpiece. The yellow centerpiece is the bullseye. To sin means to miss the mark. So if I hit up in the white part or the blue part or even a red part, no matter how close I think I am to doing what is right, if I don't hit the bullseye, I'm not right. Your righteousness is not righteousness based on somebody else's unrighteousness. Your righteousness is based upon God's righteousness. Sin is missing the mark. One of the Hebrew words for sin, and there's actually several, but we don't have time to get into it all, is hata. In uh, Strong's Concordance, it's number 2403. It literally means to miss the mark. The Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, what is the Old Testament written in? What language? Hebrew. What is the New Testament written in? Greek and Aramaic. Those three languages Jesus spoke. Okay? So the Hebrew tells us that sin is missing the mark. In the Greek, the word is hamataria. It is an equivalent to also meaning missing the mark. Hebrew had a very small vocabulary. So word meanings were not often as precise as English words are. It is very common in language to use very natural terms to describe things that are much more abstract. So this concept is found in the Apostle Paul's writing. Philippians 3.14 says, I press on towards what? The mark, the bullseye for the prize 
of the high calling in Jesus Christ. So he's saying, my goal, because Christ lives in me, by faith, I am righteous and I am holy, my goal is always to hit the bullseye. I should never miss if I'm walking in step with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Are you with me? Paul also told us in Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So if I'm not living in faith as a Christian, I might say, okay, this brother or this sister over here, they commit adultery, but I didn't commit adultery. I may have said a lie when I went to immigration yesterday, which I went to immigration yesterday and I didn't lie. But understand, nobody may have known I lied when I, if I wrote something on a paper that I shouldn't have written. But if I compare my sin to someone else's sin, whatever is not of faith is sin. So if I'm not doing what God is holding me, or you're not doing what God is holding you accountable to, then it's sin. You have to know God's word well enough so that your conscience can bear witness with what is right and what's wrong. It is clear that the will of God, who wants to know the will of God for their life? Everybody. That's like the number one question I get asked a lot of times. What's God's will for my life? It is clear that the will of God, whether we are aware of what it is or not, is the mark. The will of God is not just something in your future, it's now. The will of God is to walk in season and out of season with Jesus. That's the will of God. If you're saying, I want to know where God's calling me to and who God's going to marry, have me marry, and how many kids I'm supposed to have, and what I'm supposed to do, and all those things, that's part of the will of God. But if you focus on what is always going to happen in the future and you don't walk with God now, you will miss the will of God because you're not trying to hit the bullseye. Now, where that YWAM sign is, you know, maybe 30, 40 feet away, that is a target that I could hit. But if that target was quadruple the distance far away from me, it would be harder to hit. So you got to learn how to hit the mark that's in front of you. Stop aiming. Hopefully I'll hit it. Hopefully I'll do the right thing. No, do what's right in front of you to do. If all you know today is to wake up in the morning and spend time with Jesus, and you don't know what else the will of God will be to that, that day or that week or that month or that year, then you are hitting the mark for today. And learning how to walk in the will of God in step with the Holy Spirit will teach you to stay away from sin, which is trying to keep you from obeying God and fulfilling your destiny. That's a good word. That's a good understanding to have because we always want to know more than what we should know. But 
You are here at this school to be trained. So don't worry about what's going to happen in 10 years. Because if you're walking with God now, you're going to get to where you need to go later. Amen? Amen. This is part of your destiny. 70 years old. Wants to come back to school. I absolutely love it. Why? Because he wants to fulfill the plan of God for his life. And it sounds like we had a discussion yesterday on how much has happened in his life. Some of the things that he's, uh, you know, with his wife, over 40 years of marriage. I mean, that alone is amazing. Children, sons, three sons, four sons, and Kagayan, different ministry involvement. He's talking to my buddy Kevin and Melita about wanting to go do tribal ministry. I love it. You know why? Because he says, God has a plan for me to fulfill. And this is part of my destiny. He's not coming and saying, I know everything. Listen, if you're under 30 years old, in my mind, you're still a teenager. And why do I say that? Because you're still trying to formulate what you believe. And if you didn't grow up in a Christian home with godly parents that represented Jesus really well, then a lot of us grew up like that. But what you can do is bring change. And what does that mean? You can go after God now so that when you have children, they are able to start at a higher rate than where you started. And they'll be able to accomplish more than what you did because you have learned things that you could teach them. And I want to encourage you to obey God where you're at. And you'll get there. The beauty of the gospel is that there is a cure for our failures. It's called grace or unmerited favor. What is unmerited favor? It means favor that you did not get because of your works. Okay? So grace is unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it, and there's nothing you could do to work for it, but God gave it to you because he loves you. Isn't that good? We have eternal life. We have forgiveness of sin. We have hope. We have destiny. We have purpose. We have a will and a plan that God has for our lives. He's in control. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. This is unmerited favor. This is the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of your good works lest anyone should boast or take pride in what you have gained. What you have gained in Jesus was not up to you. You remember Jesus died between two thieves on the crosses? One cursed him, and the other one said, while he's being crucified, nails in his hands and his feet, beaten up, tortured, shamed, Dying naked on a cross. That's often how the Romans did it. He turned to Jesus and he said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Because when that man said, Remember me, he expressed faith in Jesus. And on the last moments of his life, 
that faith caused Jesus to turn to him and say, this day, you're going to be with me in paradise. And that's powerful. It's powerful because the man didn't deserve it. He was dying for his sin, for the things that he did wrong. And Jesus could have came off of that cross and took him off the cross and destroyed the entire Roman guard. But if he did that, then the sins of mankind would have no atonement. And you and I would have no help. So it was better for Jesus to die on the cross than to try and save his own life. It was better for you and I. It was better for all of mankind that this provision would be made. And it was better for that man. Look at the other guy died next to Jesus. And he didn't repent. People can be this close to Jesus. People could even be dying on a cross and still not be repentant. <clears throat> Aaron Armstrong of the Gospel Project said this, One aspect of sin is missing the mark of God's standards set for humanity. At first, we blush, missing the mark sounds like it could be referring to a simple mistake or an unintentional error. But missing the mark actually refers to falling short of God's glory. Though conscious choosing of sin, through conscious choosing of sin. So is it appropriate to refer to sin as failure on our part to live according to God's standards? Sure. But here's the thing. We have to recognize that this failure is intentional. When we sin, we do it intentionally. We miss the mark when we deliberately choose to cast aside God's intention for us. Listen, you don't have to miss the mark anymore. You could be forgiven and holy. And you don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. You can enjoy your relationship with God. And not be thinking that God's standing over you to just judge you and beat you down. That's not who he is. He's a loving father looking for you and I. Let's look in Psalm 19. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament. What is firmament? the sky, the universe, right? Shows his handiwork. Day unto day, the firmament, the sky, the universe, it utters speech. And night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, in who? In the words and in the firmament, right? He has set a tabernacle for the sun. He has sent a covering for the sun. 
which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. So the sun is so bright that it shines light in darkness and rejoices like a strong man to run its race, to run his race. You ever see that athlete? Anybody ever uh, run in a race, you know? And you come up and you're excited to run, but then you stand next to this six foot three beast of a man with just muscles popping out of every part of his body. There's, there's no fat, there's no chubbiness, right? He looks like he's been exercising his entire life. Looks like he's been chiseled out of a rock, right? And he looks like he's ready to run the race. This is what this is talking about. Like a strong man ready to run his race. This is a person who's been prepared. It's rising from one end of heaven and it's circuit to the other. And there is nothing hidden from the sun's heat. Now look at the change that takes place. He's saying all of heaven declares the glory of God. That's what he's talking about. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Is what? Is perfect. What is it doing? Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Please memorize this verse. Please. It may not make all the sense to you right now, although I see the light coming on for some of you right now. Who converts us? The law. Listen. I did not know what sin was except by the law. So if I don't know what I'm repenting of, can Jesus change me? No. Because he will not go against my will to change me. So if I understand the law properly, then I have a consciousness of what is right and what is wrong. I understand what sin is. Are you with me? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What is the soul? Mind, emotions, and will. We're going to talk about that in the next session. The next session I'm going to talk about what is repentance. Converting the soul. This is, this is written before Jesus came. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise a symbol. That means in your humility and in your brokenness and in your seeing your need for God because you cannot obey the law without Him, you can be converted by crying out and saying, I need a Savior. This is what makes grace amazing. The statutes, or the law again, of the Lord are right rejoicing in the heart. We can rejoice in the Lord always. We can rejoice in his word, in his law. Why? Because we're not under it anymore, but we're over it in Christ. The commandment of the Lord is pure and it's bringing light to the eyes. Oh, 
You know, Psalm 34 says that those who look to him are radiant and their faces are never covered with shame. So you and I who are born again, we have a better covenant than the psalmist who wrote that had through the law because we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. We have a better covenant so that now we can understand who Jesus is in a light with understanding that could cause us to be radiant. I'm free. I'm not guilty. I'm not full of shame. I'm not bound by sin and death anymore, but I have the ability to walk in the spirit and walk under the authority of the kingdom of God. Look at this. The fear of the Lord is what? Clean. Clean. Isn't that good? I love the description. Enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You are righteous in everything that you say and do. Amen? Do you believe that? Jesus Christ is righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey from the honeycomb. In other words, your law is worth more than all the money and the gold in the world. Your law is so beautiful and so wonderful that if I value it, it will taste better to me than honey from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your law, your servant is warned. And in keeping your law, there is great reward. So here's a, let me give you a little bit of insight. Before Jesus, we were under the law. So we could not keep it all, even though we tried. But with Jesus, we can now keep the law. So all the rewards that Jesus has, because he's always kept the law, when you are born again, by faith alone in Jesus Christ, all of those rewards are given to you. Ooh, that's a good shortcut. Amen? That means that if you have all the rewards of the blessing of God and you're not under a curse anymore, that you have absolute freedom to obey God and watch him work on your behalf. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Is that your prayer? Amen? Keep me from sins of commission and sins of omission. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. What does that mean? Presumptuous means it's proud or arrogant sins. All sin is bound in pride. Do you know that the greatest sin is pride, right? Because that's what caused the devil to be kicked out of heaven. I will exalt myself above the most high. Boom, he gets thrown down. Pride. Pride is the worst sin. It is the root of all sin. So no matter what sin that you can commit, it has its roots in pride. So when we sin, we are saying against God, I don't need you. 
I am in control, right? We already explained that before. So keep your servant back from arrogant sins, from prideful sins. Let them not have control or dominion over me. I don't want to be a slave to sin. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression, great sin. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Listen, when you're reading the scripture, my friend, read between the lines. Meditate. That means, do you know what it means to muse? It means to think about it. Read the scripture. Don't go, when you go through the scripture, make sure the scripture goes through you. Amen? Last week, actually the last couple months, there were two young men that I've been ministering to. Both of them in the last couple years got more serious about God and have been doing well. The first young man came to my office in November and he was very broken over some secret sin that he was living in. And he cried and broke. I mean, just felt terrible for what he's done. And I said, bro, this is the right response. Now we're going to have an accountability process so that you won't do the same thing again. I'm going to help disciple you. You are hungry. Right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I can't make somebody hungry. I can't make somebody thirsty. The only thing that we can do when we evangelize is plant seeds and water seeds. Only God can make them grow. I talked a little bit about that yesterday. The second young man, I had to call into my office because in prayer, the Lord gave me a burden for him that something was not right. So he did not come to me. But I called him after two weeks of feeling like something's not right with him. So I asked him to come in and talk to me. And he did. And I said, bro, something's not right. And then he told me he's been doing different sins, things that he shouldn't be doing that he knows is wrong. But he didn't seem like he was repentant. The first young man right now is absolutely prospering. He confessed, he repented, he took ownership, and he's doing great. The second young man is falling farther and farther away from God every day. I'm not going to tell you what he's doing because it's, it's very sad and it breaks my heart. I want nothing more than to see this young man say, I'm so sorry. I've realized what I've done is wrong. I need help. Like, I'll do anything. I believe God is like that. But I can't override the will of this second young man. I can't make him obey God. And the hardest thing that I go through as a missionary, as a man of God, as a disciple maker, as a spiritual father, is that there's people I pour out my life for. And then they turn away from the Lord. 
That's painful. I've seen it happen many times. But you know what outweighs that? All the incredible young men and women that are walking with the Lord. But it's easy for my conscience to become so aware of the one that isn't and to feel so much heaviness that I carry around. And my prayer is that he would repent, but I can't make him repent. And I have clearly outlined for him what is right and what's wrong, but still he's not walking in obedience to the Lord's word and his conscience. Until we see our sin as being against God, we will never repent. Psalms 51. Does anybody know what Psalm 51 is all about? It's David's what? It is his prayer of repentance of when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Do you know that David murdered her husband? Yes. Do you know that David slept with a woman out of wedlock? Do you know that he slept with someone else's wife? That he was an adulterer? And yet God calls him a man after my own heart. Because when Nathan, the prophet, came to him and exposed his sin to King David, Nathan could have been killed. David was the most powerful man in the world. And he pointed his finger and he said, you are the man. David crumbled and repented. And Bathsheba was with child. She was pregnant and the baby died. Because it was part of the judgment against sin. That baby was innocent. But David's sin and disobedience affected everybody around him. When he repented, God gave him another son. And it's interesting because he would God would refer to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah. But after Uriah is dead and David repents, he then calls Bathsheba David's wife. And he gives him a new son, Solomon. Interestingly enough, Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. <coughs> Listen, even though David repented, that sin still had a curse on it that needed to be broken and it affected his son I want to tell you your sin is against God Psalm 51 verse 4 against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge David was honest. Listen, we may repent from sin and God might forgive us, but sometimes our sin still has consequences. Thank you for listening to Revival Cry with Eric Miller. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review for this podcast on iTunes 
cpnshows.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more or partner with our missions work around the world, please visit us at revivalcry.org. I look forward to being with you next week.